Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for our time already today, just focusing on this uh, tremendous news of uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus, uh, the Saviour King of the world, born into this uh, world to die for us, so that we sinners like us can be reconciled to you forever. That is uh, news worth singing about, and you are a wonderful God, and we love to praise you. Uh, we also love to hear from your, you through your word. Um, thank you that you speak through your word, reveal your Son, and reveal your glory in him. And so we pray today that um, we would be, um, that by your spirit you would speak to us deeply, change us, we pray, uh, allow your word to sink, penetrate the depths of our being and change us from the inside out, um, that you would be fully pleased with, with our lives and that we can know uh, our security you have in your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, John.
By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Jesus 
uses our physical hunger. If you were with us a few weeks ago, when we looked at John 6, Jesus talking about how he is the bread of life, we've already seen how Jesus uses that idea about our physical hunger to talk about who he is, he's the bread of life. And in, in today's passage, he just keeps pressing into this idea, uh, this image, this uh, image of food and water. Well, today it's water, this image of water. It's, it's just as powerful as what he says about bread. But we'll see along the way, Jesus uses it to bring different things out. Um, we're going to, um, it's a long passage that we read. We're going to really focus in on a few verses and spend most of our time there, but um, we will pick up the story as uh, where um, we started off in verse 25, which will come up on the screen. This just picks up again from where we were last week uh, in the start of John chapter 7. Uh, if you remember last week in John 7, there's all these people who are judging Jesus, misunderstanding him, you get some people actively opposing him. Uh, and through this passage that we just had read, uh, everyone seems to be grasping at him. Uh, some try to grasp at him to figure him out, what's, what's going on with Jesus. Others think they've already figured out him out and they're trying to grasp him to get rid of him. We, we heard last week again that Jesus has come to the Feast of Tabernacles. And more on that soon. That's, really, that's going to be very significant for this passage. Um, but the people seem a bit confused in verse 25. Uh, John writes for us at that point some of the people uh, um, uh, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask isn't this the man they're trying to kill here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word about him have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah so there's, there's this rumour going around that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill Jesus um, a bit of a side note here that you can kind of pick up here the confusion among the crowd Again, if you're here last week, you remember Jesus told the crowd, you're trying to kill me. And a lot of the crowd said, what are you talking about? You're mad. No one's trying to kill you. But um, at this Feast of Tabernacles, people came from all over to Jerusalem to gather there. Um, and it's, it's interesting here to notice in verse 25, it's the people of Jerusalem, not the crowd who's gathered from all around. It's those who Jerusalem who they seem to know about the plot against Jesus. Uh, they seem to know about it. Um, and they're confused. They know the authorities are planning on grabbing Jesus and killing him. Uh, but now he, here he is in the middle of the festival, uh, and no one is saying anything about it. Um, maybe they've been, maybe they, they start to think, these, these people from Jerusalem, maybe the leaders, maybe they've been converted. Maybe uh, they um, think Jesus is the Messiah. But the crowd, if you notice, they don't believe it themselves. They think they know Jesus. Verse 27, um, Jesus is just too ordinary. He's too down to earth to be the Messiah. Even, even, if, even if the leaders think he is. Verse 27, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. And then we'll skip down, we'll come back to those other verses, but we'll skip down to verse 30. Uh, they... They don't like what Jesus says. We'll hear what he says in a moment. But uh, after he says that they try and grab him, uh, the, uh, they try and grab him to get rid of him. Uh, there are many, we're told, who do believe. They do grasp something true about Jesus. 
And again, we'll come back to that. But uh, the other thing, so there's all these people sort of trying to grab Jesus, either physically or trying to get him mentally. The other people you see here are the Pharisees. Uh, in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. They've got all these people around him. Some are starting to believe in him. There's lots who don't believe in him. They just want to get rid of him. And how is it that Jesus responds? This is, um, Jesus always surprises when he responds in this situation, doesn't he? He knows that really they're all trying to grasp him. They can't, they really can't, they can't grasp him. They actually can't grasp him physically. Did you notice that on the way through in verse 30? They tried to seize him, uh, but no one could lay a hand on him because his hour hadn't come yet. We've already seen that idea about the hour is really important in John. Um, this, this hour, Jesus, the son, is in his father's hands and he's going on his father's timetable. Um, his father has an hour for him that is coming, but that hour is not yet. Uh, and because it's not yet, they just they can't do anything about it. These guys, they, they can't grasp him and arrest him. So um, they they don't they can't get at Jesus physically, but they can't get him spiritually on a deeper level. They can't see who he is. They can't understand him. They think they do. They think they know his whole family history. They know where he's from. He's so ordinary and mundane, they think. Um, even at, at right at the end of the passage, if you, we won't focus on that, right at the end they say a prophet can't come um, out of Galilee. Uh, and even that is technically wrong. There were prophets out of Galilee. So they're, they, they're, they're presuming a lot, right? They, 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 they think they've got uh, everything on Jesus. But they don't really know him, not truly. He isn't ultimately from Galilee. He's been sent by God the Father. Verse 29, I am from him, and he sent me. Now, they don't know where he's from or where he's going. Not really. They think they do, but Jesus says no, he does. In verse 33, I am with you only for a short time, and... And I'm going to the one who sent me. Now you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. See what he's saying? They think they've got hold of him. But they have. They're judging. Remember at the end of last week, Jesus says to them, You are judging by appearances, but judge rightly. They're, not, they're just going by appearances. They're not judging rightly. They can't see the truth. And then Jesus says something really shocking in verse 28. Sorry, we're sort of jumping around a bit here. But back in verse 28, he says something really shocking. He said there, he says, Yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. I think that's supposed to be a bit sarcastic. You know, Jesus says, Oh, sure, you know, you know all about me. Um, but then he goes on, I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. You do not know him. Think about the impact that would have had on people, deeply religious people, who had all of their identity invested in knowing God. And Jesus says, you don't know me, you don't recognise me, I am the one sent from the Father, then you don't really know God. 
would have been really shocking for them and would have offended them. And you can sort of feel the tension jump around his first section a little bit by the end, but by the time he gets a, um, uh, down to verse 36 or so, you can feel this tension building. Uh, we saw it last week as you move into chapter 7, there's this rain, this rising of tension. Uh, Jesus goes from having just people walk away from him to all of a sudden now there's this active opposition against him. Uh, we hear about the leaders wanting to kill him. Remember in the start of chapter 7, his own brothers don't understand him. And now the, tr- the crowds themselves in Jerusalem are trying to grab him. Um, it's not all bad news. We're told in verse 31, many of the crowd do believe in him. But they're still whispering about it. They're still kind of whispering about it. There's a lot of tension in the air. What is Jesus going to do? Now this is where things really start to ratchet up. Um, remember, remember where it is Jesus is saying this, before we get to what Jesus says in response. Where is it? He's, we've already mentioned it. It's this, this major festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it's a major national annual festivals, school is on steroids, right? Uh, hundreds of thousands of people from all around the country, a bit different from schools, uh, but uh, they travel to Jerusalem for a week to live in tents. Um, it was a, like a yearly reminder of how they wandered in the wilderness, living in tents, after God had saved them out of Egypt from slavery and how God had so incredibly provided for them We've already seen how Jesus takes this idea when he talks about the bread of life. I mentioned that earlier. Um, just like God provided bread from heaven, this manna, Jesus says, I am the true bread from heaven, true eternal manna. Um, but in the story back in the Exodus, God also provided water. Uh, if you, might, you can look it up in Exodus 17 if you like, but um, there's the story of the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. They're kind of dying of thirst. And God provides water out of the rock. Moses goes and strikes the rock and God provides water for his people too. Uh, this, ceremony, this, this festival of tabernacles had a ceremony that particularly reminded everyone about that. Um, what they would do is on each of the seven days, the priests would go down to a pool. There's a bit of an image coming up on the screen. Um, on each of the seven days, the priests would go out to a, a pool near the temple, the pool of Siloam, um, and they would fill a, a golden jug up with water, and they would carry it back up to the temple with lots of ceremony. There'd be trumpets blasting, and everyone would be celebrating, and uh, lots of ceremony as this water was taken from the pool back up to the temple. Um, they, they, there was a gate around uh, the, uh, that they'd go through called the water gate, and when they got there, they'd blow their ram's horns. Uh, this was this great moment of celebration. The priest would go up a ramp, and he'd have these silver bowls, and he'd pour out this water over these bowls in front of everyone. And it was this great symbolic moment of remembering this powerful visual reminder of who they were and what God had done for them in the past, how he'd always provided for them. How God was the one they depended on for life and how he gave it to them. And Jesus chooses this point, this high point of the Jewish year, uh, one of the biggest of all the festivals that they had. Jesus chooses this point 
And it's worth just sort of considering how shocking that would have been. And the closest equivalent I could think of for us as Australians is Anzac Day. <coughs> it doesn't quite get it because this was a celebration and Anzac Day is a bit more um, solemn. So maybe it's something like Anzac Day combined with Grand Final Day or something. Okay? <laughs> Our great religious moments in Australian life. Um, but can you imagine... Can you imagine uh, the dawn service, the moment of greatest reflection, someone getting up, uh, the, the last post is about to play, okay, the, the, and, and can you imagine the offence of someone getting up at that moment, everyone's listening and focusing on this, and someone getting up and yelling out to the crowds, uh, if anyone wants to have peace, come to me, I'm the one who will give it to you. I mean... Uh, we think that person is crazy. Many would be deeply offended. I'm not suggesting that we do that at all, by the way. But that, that's the kind of intensity in this moment when Jesus gets up. The kind of intensity that's going on here. For a whole week, the people have been celebrating God's salvation, His gift of life. They've had this water poured out every day to remind them of what God did. And we're told in verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, this is where everything comes together in this festival. Everything's reaching its climax, and perhaps it's just as the priest is about to pour out the water, Jesus stands up and yells out in verse 37, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And you get a picture of the the intensity of that moment. In the face, it's interesting with Jesus, isn't it? In, in, he's had, uh, there's so much confusion around him, around other people, and opposition against him. People are leaving him. Uh, but Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't come riding in with impressive miracles to win over people like his brothers want. That's what we saw last week. He doesn't do that. Because if he did that, he might have gathered a, a, a crowd around him of people who liked what he was doing. But he wants to do something much bigger, much deeper. He takes the things right at the heart of the identity of God's Old Testament people. Right at the heart of who they were. He takes them all and he says, they're all pointing to me. He does that through these chapters in John. Maybe you've picked that up as we've gone through. He chooses these festivals, these high points um, of the Jewish calendar. Back in chapter 5, it was a festival. We're not sure which one. Chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 was near the Passover festival. So that's interesting, isn't it? Um, the, the bread God provides. Um, in the Passover festival, uh, here it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Later on in chapter 10, you hear about the Feast of Dedication, or uh, what's known as Hanukkah. So all these, all these ceremonies and festivals, they defined God's people. Um, they, they reminded them of who they were and how God had saved them. And Jesus, <laughs> he claims that they are all about him. They're all pointing to him and what he has come to do. Uh, that he's the fulfilment and the climax of all of them. And he says, you're celebrating God's provision and salvation as you pour out this water. But I've got something even better than that. 
That was wonderful. But now, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus has already claimed this once. If you remember back in chapter 4, we looked at that ages ago, uh, with the woman at the well in Samaria. He, he said, Everyone, he's talking to this woman at the well, and he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal, eternal life. So he said similar things, but he says it here in this really public way. Um, it's important to see here. So this festival that they were at, it didn't just look backwards. It did look backwards at God's provision. Um, but it was also like a cry to God for the future. It also had this element of um, looking forward to the future. All through the Old Testament, this image of water, it gets used to picture something that God would do in the future. Water is all through the Old Testament. It gets used to picture And we read it out earlier in Isaiah 12, which will uh, come up on the screen. Isaiah 12 was actually read out at this festival every year, this passage. Uh, and so this would have been ringing in their ears as Jesus calls out. Isaiah looks ahead to this coming day of God's salvation when he would act again in a bigger way even than the Exodus. He would bring about his global salvation. He looks ahead to this in Isaiah, um, and, and he writes, With joy you will draw well a water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This coming day would be a day when God would act in a, real, in a, a new way. And the other theme that gets pulled out of me, in Old Testament passages about this is that this is connected, all connected to God's Spirit, the work of God's Spirit. Now, with joy, uh, later on in Isaiah, um, uh, he writes about this. It's not as if God has been. So they looked forward to this day when God would act in a fresh way. It wasn't as if God has been sort of asleep at the wheel all this time and suddenly he'll um, wake up and start acting. No, but. He's always at work, but this would be a day when, by His Spirit, He would act in a remarkably new way. In chapter 44, God says this time, I will pour water on the thirsty lands and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This connection between this image, this wonderful image of water pouring down to picture what God's going to do in the future and connecting it with the work of His Spirit. God had always, He'd always had a relationship with His people through His Spirit. He'd always related to His people. But in the old, before Jesus came, it was always, um, that there were always go-betweens. There were always people sort of in between or things or institutions all these go-betweens, it was always mediated. The great problem through the Old Testament was there's this huge gap between the holy God and his sinful people. This huge gap between them that they, they couldn't cross. How could a holy God 
have a relationship with his sinful people without the people themselves being destroyed. Uh, and so God gave things like the temple and the sacrifices. God's Spirit would descend on the temple. Uh, uh, that was where he chose to, to live, to be present among his people through the temple. That was, and uh, if you know the story, once a year the high priest could enter into the heart of the temple. Only once a year, only the high priest. It was like this constant reminder that God is holy and you're, you are not and there's a problem here. How are we going to have this relationship? I've set up this. Uh, but God promised to David his relationship with his people wouldn't be like that. When he would deal with sin once and for all, fully and finally, when, he, when his people would have his word written on their hearts, when sin would be dealt with, and because of that, God would pour out his spirit on them and relate to them in this new, intimate way, not through the ceremonies and sacrifices of the temple. And we're told here in John that when Jesus says, come and drink, when he talks about living water inside those that believe him, when Jesus says that, he means in verse 39, we'll skip, back up, skip back to John, verse 39, when Jesus is talking about that, he means... The Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Um, it's an interesting thing at the end there, isn't it? John uses this idea of Jesus being glorified to talk about His death and resurrection. Uh, his hour that was coming. We've already, his hour hasn't come yet. Um, it's a strange way to talk about glory, isn't it? Death. But that was the moment that he had come for, the great thing he'd come to do. So friends, I know there's a lot in there, but do you see what's being said here? At, the, at this festival, as the water is poured out, remembering God's salvation, longing for him to come and act, to bring about his final restoration of all things, and to bring about a new work of his spirit, as this water is being poured out, Jesus says, that time is now here. Come to me. I'm going to deal with the great problem in your relationship with God, your sin. So all these ceremonies and sacrifices are going to be fulfilled. They won't be needed anymore because I will bear your sin in myself when I'm glorified. When you believe in me, I'll give you my life my righteousness, you will have that intimate relationship with God that you could never have on your own because of your sin. His Spirit will be like a spring of living water within you, a never-ending and never-failing source of life. Well, uh, the rest of the chapter, uh, we won't go through in detail, but it's uh, the, the division over Jesus continues. More and more people are starting to see him for who he is and, and believe in him. Even the temple guards, that's a bit comical, isn't it? The temple guards get sent out by them to arrest Jesus and they kind of come back without Jesus with them. And the Pharisees say, what are you doing? Why haven't you brought him back? And they, they all say, well, they're all struck by Jesus, right? No one's talked like him. Um, and it, we even see Nicodemus again. Uh, he's, he was back in chapter 3, he pops up again here, and 
defends Jesus, or he at least wants Jesus to have a fair hearing. But the Pharisees aren't interested. Uh, but you, you finish this chapter seeing that despite this anger that's rising against Jesus, and this real anger and opposition to him, there are people who hear Jesus' words. There are people who hear Jesus say, all you who are thirsty, and say, yes, that's me. I'm thirsty. And who believe that Jesus is the one who can give them this living water. They begin to trust that he is the one who gives new life. And it wasn't long after that that Jesus' hour did come. He did die for the sins of his people. He did rise again. And not long after that again, uh, his followers were huddled together. You read about it in Acts 2. And God's Spirit does come on them in this new, incredible, powerful way. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Uh, and, they, and so they did. They, they spoke about the cross. They spoke with a new boldness about Jesus, about who he was. And that sent ripples through the world that we're still feeling today. So friends, I just want to finish by... Uh, this is the same question that we asked a few weeks ago. Are you hungry? Um, it's really the same. It's a similar question today, isn't it? Are you thirsty? Uh, it is a key question that Jesus wants us to ask ourselves honestly. Have you drunk from Jesus and responded to his invitation to you to come? It might be that you have done that. If that's the case, did you notice something? There's just a very subtle thing here, but I think it's very important. You notice there's this reality to what Jesus says. I'll explain it. But drinking is another powerful image Jesus uses to talk about faith, about trusting in Jesus. Uh, but do you notice what he says here? He doesn't say, come and drink and you will have a continual feeling of happiness, a constant spiritual experience. I'll turn you into a bubbly person. Thank God for bubbly people, really. Um, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not what Jesus is saying here. He is describing a reality. He's saying something that is true if you have put your faith in Jesus. Whoever believes in me, he says, will have rivers of living water flow from within them. However small your faith, however much you struggle, if you come to Jesus, not offering anything in yourself to impress him, but simply just, to use the image, just opening your mouth to receive the water that he freely gives you, if you have done that, then you have the Holy Spirit, and you have within you, in reality, a never-failing, never-ending stream of living water. You have a resource to always draw on. Something you can always drink from. 
This isn't talking about an extra experience that you have after you become a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian if you're a Christian at all. And it's true of you whether you're happy or depressed, confident or afraid, doubting or content. The question is not whether you have uh, this living water of God's Spirit in you, it's whether you do have it if you're trusting in Christ. And the, the question is, will you keep drinking it in? So there's this hard reality to it. This is describing something that's true about you if you're trusting in Christ. You have this inexhaustible well of living water within you. But it's hard to get past this. Well, we shouldn't get past it because uh, there, there is an experience on you here too, isn't there? Um, it's not meant to give anxiety for those who do believe in Jesus about whether they have the Spirit or not. If you trust Him, you do. That's Jesus' work. Uh, whoever believes in me will have this living water. But Jesus, Jesus appeals to our thirst. And He appeals to our spiritual thirst because He knows He really can satisfy us. And He wants us to have it satisfied. To drink deeply from Him. As the Spirit works in us, He will expose our thirst. He will show us sin and our need. And He'll open our eyes to God's Word about Jesus. Open our hearts to see the reality of what Jesus has done. And through trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, that's not just how we begin, but how we go on in the Christian life. Continuing to drink from this. So friends, if you're a tired Christian, or if you're an energised Christian, if you're a dowsing Christian, or a content Christian, if you're a bold Christian, or if you're a scared Christian, come to Jesus. Drink His living water again. His Spirit is in you. This well that is always there and will always be available for you to drink from. He'll show you again the truth of the Gospel and deepen your faith in Jesus. That's how you'll have this objective reality filter down into your experience. To see that, to taste and see that Jesus does satisfy your thirst. You won't come to Jesus unless you know your thirst though. And it may be some here that they've never done that. They haven't acknowledged that need and thirst before God. So if that's you, friend, will you pray that God will soften your heart to see how everything you go to to quench your thirst doesn't actually satisfy you. You get a temporary satisfaction, but then you just have to go back again and again for more. Will you ask God to soften your heart to see that you are thirsty and to heed Jesus' invitation to you to come and drink from him, to place your life in his hands, to trust him yourself. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within me. Let's pray. Our God, we hear your promise to us that you can satisfy our thirst 
we admit before you, Lord, that we seek to have our thirst quenched. And in other things, other than you, in the people around us, or experiences, or in ourselves. But Father, please, by your Spirit, help us to see our deep thirst. And to hear Jesus' word to us to come, whether we've done that and we are trusting in you. Or not, for all of us, Father, we pray that we might come again to Jesus, the well of living water. We thank you for the precious gift of your Holy Spirit, this never-failing stream of life that is within us. Lord, we pray that you might help us to continue, continually drink from that day. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name.